Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. recording already. Okay, so um, I'm going to pick up thinking a bit about what we discussed last week and sort of summarizing and we can, we'll have a little time for discussion because there were a few threads we might have left sort of undone from last week. And if anything else occurs to you, feel free to bring it up and then we'll get into this week's material. But um, So just a reminder, the way we're going through this is we're taking one line of the creed at a time and kind of presenting the orthodoxy, the content that uh, is the kind of confessional claim. And then the next week we're looking at heterodoxy, in other words, what, where we start moving beyond the bounds of what's considered core Christian belief and confession. So we've, been, we've taken the first confession that we believe in God the Father, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. And so last week we talked about what goes beyond the bounds of that confession. So of course atheism right? Because atheism is essentially the claim that uh, there is no God, that God is an illusion, that, um, and the modern iteration of that is basically that, uh, kind of what Josh was taking us through, is the idea that uh, the world is essentially um, chance and essentially kind of physical manifestations of uh, mechanisms that when you boil it down, that's all there is, right? Something that's left to chance. Um, and there, we talked about how uh, there are various forms of atheism, that a lot of people come to atheism not because they necessarily have a scientific materialist worldview only, but a lot of times it's because um, the various notions of God with which they've been presented um, have failed them. They've been kind of bankrupt in some sense. And so they kind of tend towards atheism because it seems like their only option. So we could talk a lot more about what uh, kind of classical atheists claim, but we don't really have time to get into it uh, today. Then we, um, we talked about dualism and pantheism. Okay, so dualism and pantheism are distinct from atheism because they actually affirm that there is a divine being or force of some kind. Um, they sit close to atheism in the sense that uh, in these two versions of reality, God is not really an agent that gets involved in our lives. So um, from the dualist perspective, it's kind of like God versus the world, okay? Um, the world and God, uh, now it's not that they're in conflict so much, is that they just don't go together. So there's all these different types of dualism, but consistently what they see is that God is at a remove from the world. God set it up. God got it going. God is powerful, but God is uh, distant. God's at a remove. And it might be because some versions of that say it's because the, the material realm and the divine kind of are opposed to one another. They can't really go together because the material realm has fallen. Um, or it might say something like, uh, God is just sort of non-caring 
right? That God is this kind of at a cool distance. It's not that God can't intervene. It's that that's just not God's nature. So there's all these different types of dualisms as well. Um, but essentially, it, we can think of those as there's a remove, okay? And then with pantheism, that's uh, the idea that everything is God, okay? The world is God. Um, or panentheism, which is everything is in God. Um, everything that happens is, is somehow contained in God's life. And uh, the problem with pantheism that we said is that um, there's this kind of, so there's something nice about pantheism in the sense that God is intimate with us. God is present in all things in this vision. But what is God? God is just something like a kind of, um, kind of classical pantheism would say everything is God. If you can just kind of see cancer the right way, you would see that God is present there, that it, is, it too is God. Panentheism says something a little more Christian-sounding, um, that God is a force for good, that is sort of drawing reality towards the good. It's kind of like the force in Star Wars, maybe, okay? Um, but in the end, this isn't a God that can intervene. This is not a God that can <clears throat> uh, remake the world. So it leaves us with the sense that it's all up to us. If, we're gonna, if the world's going to get better in any way, it's up to us entirely. God's not, God is something like a kind of good force that's evolving with us, with our lives. So um, the two ways that we talked about this getting practical, um, we talked about how, well, so let's think about this functionally. How do we accidentally become dualists? How do we accidentally become pantheists in terms of, this is not what we profess, but how do we end up acting this way a little bit? Um, so I would say, out of those two options in churches of Christ, and I would say, and then largely in evangelical circles, we tend the tendency collectively is more towards something like dualism, in the sense that um, do we really expect God to meet us in the material world? Do we really think God gets involved? Is God cooperating with us somehow? So, for example, we don't do a great job with the sacraments. Now, in Churches of Christ, we have traditionally done a pretty good job emphasizing the importance of baptism. Um, sometimes our doctrine around that isn't great, but we've at least said it's really important. We've also said the Lord's Supper is important in the sense that we receive it every week, but uh, our theology around it isn't great. And so um, some of that's because we've inherited this uh, kind of more modernist way of thinking about the material world, that it's all about getting your mind right. It's all about focusing on God. What you're doing in your body is less important. And so um, I think that we actually could stand to have a lot more attention given to the importance of the sacraments because God is meeting us. What, what the Christian tradition has long affirms that God meets us there and that in those moments, in those kind of bodily, very physical, tangible elements, God is encountering us. So we could do a better job at that, I think. And that's open for discussion. But, um, and then also, in terms of pantheism, this isn't as much our collective problem, I don't think. Uh, we mentioned last week, some people asked the question, what about when we say everything happens for a reason? Um, that's a that's actually getting more into the discussion where we'd be discussing providence. We get into that. We're talking more about how involved is God in 
directing the way things happen in the world. Pantheists aren't really talking about that. They're talking about encountering God in every single thing or seeing every single thing as being God's energy or you're, you're finding the divine in everything. So I think where, uh, as humans, especially in kind of living in a modern contemporary setting, where we end up acting like pantheists or kind of uh, accidentally becoming pantheists is when we say or when we end up thinking as if this is all there is. Do we really believe that God will remake the world? <clears throat> do we really believe that God has the power to transform reality? Or do we really accidentally find ourselves thinking, this is it, this is as good as it gets, and if the world's going to become better, it's all up to us. Again, not so much our collective problem in Churches of Christ. We're, we still pray for God to give us power to to go into mission and that sort of thing. But I think um, as people who live in the contemporary West and 21st century with ways of thinking, we kind of tend to think um, this world is our home. It's about as good as it's ever going to get. And we don't really anticipate some sort of eschaton where God will intervene and transform things. So um, I'm curious. I, I know I've just thrown a lot out there. So I threw a lot against the wall. I don't know what stuck, but... Uh, if there's anything you'd still like to discuss from any of that, or we can move on. Your critique of the uh, doctrine around baptism or communion, how could it be improved? We can talk about that at home. Was that a <laughs> <laughs> no, it's real. That's yeah. Quietly. After, right, quietly. Yeah. <laughs> you're going to critique the. Our doctrine or our theology around these things, you have to get to it. Oh, that's got to substantiate it. Specifically, baptism. I mean, specifically, baptism. That's what I How do you think we could do it better? Yeah. Well, I think we could, <clears throat> first of all, I think that the communion meal is actually to be our purpose for gathering, more so than a sermon. Uh, more so than class or a song service or anything else we do. All of those things are good. Classes are great. Sermon's great. <clears throat> Worship is great. But the purpose of our gathering is to commune with one another and to encounter Christ, right? So we encounter Christ in the meal. I think we've reduced communion to something like a memorial service, where we're just thinking about what happened we're not thinking about the full picture of, um, this is actually a celebration meal as well. We're anticipating the, the meal that we will share with Christ and the eschaton. Christ is said to be present here. So there's a lot of rich theology that we're not tapping into. I think we could have, we could put more of our attention on uh, enriching our theology around the communion table, saying what is actually happening here. Instead of, I mean, I think I like that we get to hear from various people from the congregation about kind of their thoughts going to the table, but I wonder if we could do more to substantiate the, the theology so we know what we're doing and what we're receiving each week. Um, I also think we could make, you know, we've kind of taken the table away from the center, the focal point. We've moved it. Uh, Leland Vickers gave, brought that to my attention recently. I thought it was really helpful. I don't know if he's here, but um, there he is, yeah. Um, and even the Starts quite small over the top. The purity of the symbolism. Yeah, the symbol need for symbol. I mean, we're humans need 
physical, we need ritual, we need symbol, and we need to know what it is. We don't just need empty ritual. We need to know what it is that we're doing to remind us who we are. And so I think, um, I don't think it's a, a solve all problems kind of situation, but I think it sure would help with a lot of things that we struggle with. Do you think maybe our issue with um, communion has to do with a reaction against the doctrine of transubstantiation yes. in the cross-reformation? And in reaction to that, we've moved so far away from from the notion of sacrament that, we, that we've, we've turned it, we've, we've reduced it, as you said, from a sacrament to a reminder, so mm -hmm. to speak, mm -hmm. or a memorial. And, and I think that's... That's sort of in our tradition. That's our we we run away from everything that smacks of ritual. Yeah. And we run away from everything that, that might look like we're part of the old church. Yeah. And then in the process of running that fast away from it, we've lost something really important that's central to Christian Orthodoxy. I think that's right. And the good thing is that we kept the practice. I mean, um, we are accustomed to this happening every week and. The way you know that's important is if you try to take that away, how people react to it. I mean, people we kind of feel, I think, bodily knowing, right? There's a sense of we need this every week. Mm -hmm. uh, but, we, man, there's so much more we could be doing with it that it seems like. But, yes, I think it's all that inheritance. Yeah, David. Well, deism is a form of dualism. So we talked about that last week, actually. Yeah. If you'd been here, you would know. <laughs> the Presbyterians have a phrase called means of grace. To remember that he is present and that something happens in both baptisms. I like it. I do too. We could probably stand to have something more like that. Yep. Probably 10 years ago, so you know, it depends on my memory, but I was in Washington, D.C. on business, and some a person in our group wanted to spend our extra time to go to the new, brand new, at that point, museum, which I forget the exact title, but it's the Native American Museum in Washington, which again, remembering from 10 years ago, I was impressed, not in a good way, that one of the big themes of the museum was the spirituality of the Native Americans. And it was, you know, distinctly pantheistic. It, it was the, the God in the rivers and the mountains and the buffalo. And, and there was a display of some 19th century mission efforts, as I remember, uh, like displays of translations of the New Testament into Native American languages. But as I remember, it was almost apologetic that we were, as a culture, you know, mistreating the Native Americans and taking away their spirituality. I, I just, I'm just curious if anybody else who's been there, like I say, it, it was it was built about 10, 11 years ago. And, 
it's been a long time since I was there, but that's certainly part of North American culture. Yeah. I don't know. Is anyone else? Well, I, you know, it, it does get complicated when we start talking about interreligious uh, relations across these lines, right? So I get, I, I'm guessing there is some apologizing going on for the way they were treated, right? M more so than, I don't know. I mean, there could be some of the weird sort of apologizing for being Christian that happens as well. But of course, we know that genocide is wrong no matter when it happens, of course, yeah. But I think I hear what you're saying, which is that there's this sense of, uh, sometimes there's this sense of also apologizing for our Christian, you know, Christian confessions along with that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, if, if nothing else, I think there is much to be learned from, uh, so a lot of pantheistic religions actually <coughs> could, can teach us a good bit about respect for nature and about um, seeing God I think there's something about seeing the divine in nature that does sit close, we talked about this last week, to the notion of um, the Holy Spirit's presence throughout creation. But it is something, we are talking about something distinctive when we say that God is not the world, right? That God and the world are not synonymous, and that um, we are not to worship creation, we're to worship the creator. And um, so, yeah, we, as much as we might want to say, we... We can honor the pantheists, we can respect them, we can even learn from them, but we can't say that we're doing the same thing. Yeah. Any other comments? I think, I mean, what comes to mind is Paul and Athens. And he doesn't come in saying, we're 100% right, y'all are 100% wrong. It's, here's truth, and you guys are, are kind of part, you have one foot in this. You, know, you, you have some instincts that are there. So Paul looks for common ground and then seeks to build and bring them not. We have common ground, therefore, in the discussion, but there's common ground, and actually, if you lean in, you'll find that there's even greater truth. What you've been, your instincts are right, and if you'll keep following those, you'll see that there's even greater truth to be found here. So part of what I hope we're accomplishing in this is, is um, by contrast, we're seeing what's distinctive about the Christian faith. We can appreciate it more, but we're also seeing, are there places where we can speak to people of other worldviews or other faiths and have some, some common dialogue as an invitation in, rather than, we got to figure it out, let us come tell you everything is true. But yeah, God can be seen in nature, but we see that God is not limited to nature, that God is in charge of nature, and there is hope in that. That's part of the good news. But your instincts that there's something beautiful and transcendent? Absolutely. Yeah, I think um, there's a difference between saying that we see the world as being full of God's grandeur, or glory that the world is, you know, what Hopkins says, charged with the grandeur of God, and so there's, but that turns us toward worship, rather, you know, of what is transcendent rather than what is imminent, you might say. Okay. As we were. Um, Preparing for this class, Lauren and Matt and I had lunch, and this is completely off topic, but Matt's always so great with, with words, and so it was nice as he sat down, he realized that he didn't have any napkins, and he said, I'm going to get me some napkins. <laughs> and I looked over at Lauren when he got up and said, did he just say, I'm going to get me some napkins? So, uh, you know, it was, it was a good moment. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, yeah. 
anyway. So, if you even see on the little paper we handed out about the creed, um, we're going we're gonna to recite that in a little bit uh, towards the end of class. But notice the middle section, how long that is compared to the other two. Um, so this section where we're talking about Jesus and the Apostles' Creed is the longest chunk of this. You can kind of see the first part is about God the Father, second about uh, Jesus, and then that last little paragraph is the Holy Spirit and, and uh, His work in the church. So we're getting a sense of the centrality of Jesus. The church recognized how important Jesus is and also how difficult it is to kind of wrap your mind around the unique quality of this divine human figure. Uh, they're trying to figure out, okay, he was human, but he's somehow also God. Can God actually take on flesh? Can God actually die? Was he really God? Maybe he became God later. Was he God the whole time? Was he God as a baby? Um, it's just, it's complex. Uh, and so the church didn't just think, eh, we'll just agree to disagree on, you know, the doctrine of Christ. Instead, they thought, this stuff kind of matters, and we need to work through this, even if it's difficult, um, because uh, there are problems when we get this wrong. Um, not just because we're wrong up here, but because it then becomes wrong in how we live and how we um, share the good news and hope and all kinds of other stuff. So, uh, today, we're just looking at the first part of that. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. And if we have time, we'll, we'll get to the He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, um, to claim that uh, Jesus is Christ, Son, and Lord, maybe in about five or six minutes, I'll, I'll go over that. Is Jesus the Christ? We call ourselves Christians. Yeah, we're good with calling Jesus Christ but uh, I wonder, hopefully no one in this room, but, uh, but I wonder how much of us can have said Jesus is the Christ, but we don't quite know what it means. Um, is it just a last name? Uh, is it something more? And so it's really helpful for us, if we're saying Jesus Christ, to be able to know how to explain what that is instead of just um, attach it on like a title or a last name alone. To call Jesus the Christ is to claim that Jesus is the Messiah. This is who Jewish people were longing for. This is something of the this hope of Israel. Um, Messiah means anointed. It's, it sounds like anointed in Hebrew. Christ sounds like anointed in Greek. So Messiah, Christ, kind of interchangeable. Uh, God promised David uh, an everlasting kingdom. And then you get this hints in the Old Testament about this, this messianic king who's going to come along and set things right. So to understand who Jesus is, uh, we have to understand something about the Old Testament. Uh, to call Jesus the Christ is to root ourselves in that Old Testament story. So you, you can't uh, really be a Christian and then dishonor uh, our Jewish heritage, our Old Testament heritage. We have to know something about what God was doing through Israel and through David um, uh, in order to then understand our confession that Jesus is the Christ. To call Jesus Christ uh, is to say something about him being king. Uh, so N.T. Wright, uh, King Jesus, or Scott McKnight, likes to, to, to really bring this kind of home for us by calling Jesus King Jesus, uh, which might remind us of Jesus' work of bringing the kingdom of God. And we saw this last semester that for Jesus uh, to bring the kingdom of God had this social, physical, spiritual restoration elements to it. So social restoration, we see him bringing in the tax collectors and the lepers and the sinners. Um, physical restoration, he's healing the blind, the lame, the deaf, raising the dead. Uh, spiritual, he's forgiving sins. So maybe going back to what Lauren said earlier, how do we accidentally fall into this? 
if we think that Christianity is all about saving souls to go to heaven when they die, period, then we're missing out on a whole lot of what it means to call Jesus the king and the kingdom of God that he was spreading. He was not spreading merely a spiritual kingdom of God. We are not souls trapped in bodies, like, I don't know, Plato might think. We are bodied souls. So when Jesus comes to, to bring the kingdom and to set things right, he is taking care of us bodily, spiritually, socially. We're also not just individualistic. It matters that we're part of community. So to call Jesus Christ is to name something about what God was doing in the Old Testament and something about the nature of the kingdom. Um, so this is not just a, uh, something we can, we can fly over. We need to know um, who Jesus, it tells us something about who Jesus is and what his mission is. Uh, to call him son, we looked at this a little bit last week. Again, we can all say, yes, Jesus is Son of God. That seems pretty standard. Uh, but can we explain what that means? Uh, the creed actually says only Son. Jesus is unique. We are all lowercase s, sons and daughters. Jesus would be like a capital S Son. He is uniquely in relationship with the Father. There has been this eternal um, relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Who cares? Well, it's actually vitally important. Uh, for our worldview to recognize that, that uh, Father and Son have always been in relationship. Uh, this two-in-oneness, or as we'll get to, the three-in-oneness of the Trinity, as we saw last week, gives us reason to believe that loving community is at the center of all reality. Most of us have this instinct that love is real, that it's not just an illusion, that love really matters, and the Trinity gives us a reason to believe that, that I think is not found in any other uh, worldview. Why else might it matter that the Son is a unique revelation of the Father? Uh, because, so John 14, 9 through 10. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Um, it tells us who God is. We look to Jesus because we can confess that he is the only Son. If you want to know who God is, we can look to Jesus. Jesus doesn't just give us a little shadow or a glimpse, but it gives us the, the most definitive revelation of the character of God. That's pretty important. To call him Lord, we might look at this at, from three angles. To say Jesus is Lord is to say that he is God. So this can translate um, uh, the way in Greek that uh, God's name could be translated. So Philippians 2, the name that is above every name, that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. Standard. Did you know that that is... Um, Borrowing language from Isaiah 45. In Isaiah 45, the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess, the name above all names, is Yahweh. So here Paul is applying that to Jesus. To call him Lord is to say that he is one, uh, he is God. Uh, but we also have language of Lord, the Greek here, kurios, uh, for Caesar. Lord Caesar. To call Jesus Lord in a time when there was Lord Caesar is to say something about where our allegiance lies. So we looked at this last week. When we say, I believe, we're not just saying what we think up here, but what we confess, what we are pledging our allegiance to. To say, Jesus is Lord, is to say, this is the one who I'm going to give my loyalty, my fidelity to. So, not just up here, but uh, fully. <coughs> also, the language of Lord, kurios, uh, can be used for a master uh, over his servants. Um, and this picks up on Paul's language. We are slaves of righteousness, slaves of Christ, slaves of the Spirit. 
um, we are not kind of just independent doing our own thing. To confess Jesus as Lord is to say, His will above my will. Not my will, but your will be done. So to say this about Jesus as Christ, Son, and Lord is not only saying something about Jesus, but I hope you see it saying something about us. When we say, I believe this, we are also saying, um, this is who we are. Jesus is Christ, which means we are his subjects. Uh, we are to be his faithful citizens. To say he is the Son is to say, this is who we look to to understand who God is. To say he is Lord God is to say he is worthy of our worship and our devotion. To say he is Lord as Caesar is Lord, or greater than Caesar, is to say we are citizens of his kingdom and uh, we owe him our allegiance. I like how N.T. Wright says um, about Paul's language that our citizenship is in heaven is not a way of saying that's where we go when we die. When people say our citizenship is in Rome doesn't mean that that's where they go when they die. To say your citizenship is in Rome is to say this is where my allegiance lies. To say our citizenship is in heaven is to say... This is the kind of citizen I'm seeking to be, one who is in line uh, with the value system of heaven. And, of course, to say Jesus is Lord as masters, to say we are his servants. Uh, it's to posture ourselves as those who are not um, fully um, uh, maybe in charge or making all the decisions, uh, but we look to our master uh, for guidance. Um, Matt, Lauren? This makes me think about... Um you know, there are a lot of people who, who will acknowledge that Jesus Christ was, the, was an important person, a great teacher, mm-hmm. um, a great prophet. Uh, we even used to have a course at Lipscomb when I was there a hundred years ago called Jesus the Master Teacher. Um, but, but it seems to me, given what you've said, that, that it's important to recognize that, that Jesus was not the best prophet or the last prophet or even the greatest prophet. What you've emphasized is that he was uniquely different from all of those in terms of the fact that he is God. Yeah. And, and, he, and, and it's easy to, to look at him as, as the, the final product of a long line of prophets. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I think when we talk about the fulfillment of prophecy, we can, we can think that he's, he's the last, final, perfect model of all the kings or prophets. Mm-hmm. And that really misses the point. If you stop there, yeah, he is God, mm-hmm. and, and I think that's that's a it's a hard to, it's hard to keep it in our mind. But he's he may look like a prophet. We may talk about him as a king. But the point, the orthodox point that Christians believe is that he's he's God first, mm-hmm. who also at times behaved like a prophet or a teacher or a, yeah. a really nice guy. So next week when we get into the heterodox side of things, what we'll see is that. For the church to make this claim as they are arising out of Judaism, which is monotheistic, is it just creates all kinds of problems. It had been so much easier, both in their Jewish culture and in their Greco-Roman culture, to say Jesus is not God, to say he was created, to say he was secondary. But to hold on to him as God is to is just goes against all the instincts. But they do this because they recognize that it is vital, uh, and it's true to um, their experience and to who Jesus seemed to claim himself to be. But, but they, what they are doing is not, oh, that just makes sense. Instead, what they're doing made no sense uh, within that Greco-Roman and Jewish culture, unless he really was God. So the things to be thinking about in light of all this, in terms of kind of anticipating how do we accidentally become heterodox, 
is these two questions. Uh, one is, why do we read the Old Testament? Does it matter? Is it scripture? In what sense is it scripture? Is it just as scripture as the New Testament? Um, and then the second question is, what do we make of the doctrine of the Trinity? Is it important? Is it kind of this toss-off doctrine that we don't really have to care about, or does it actually matter? And uh, so those are two kind of teaser questions. We can get into them yesterday if we need to, but... Maybe more next week. Yeah, this <laughs> You're week. like, I'm not ready. Well, this is, yeah. No, we could... I mean, when we talk about Christ and Messiah, it's pointing us back there, but so what? Is it basically, well, there's a bunch of predictions, and he fixed those, and then we can just pick up at uh, Matthew 1, or if you're a good Church of Christ, or Acts 2. Um, or does that stuff before matter in a more in a deeper kind of sense? Um, and then, yeah, this is getting into claiming Jesus as God. What's at stake to not? Um, not just because you're going to get it wrong, but what beauty is lost? What hope is lost uh, when we give that up? Um, so, I really hope we're, we're picking up the sense that this isn't just about getting it right and getting it wrong, but, but what we lose um, that is powerful and, uh, and life-giving from this. Questions on Jesus as Christ, Son, and Lord? All right. I am so good. Um, we have no questions about this. Talk about Monogonese. Talk about Monogonese. So, um, only begotten, or, um, so, Jesus is described as the uh, monogenes, which can mean one and only, or only begotten, uh, depending on how it gets translated. Uh, I think, probably the best way to to understand that is it's speaking to something of his unique status. When we get into the language of how Jesus is begotten, that we were talking about, maybe, so like the Nicene Creed, um, which gets more explicit. Jesus is referred to as begotten, not made, I think is the actual language. Um, and that gets really complicated. Uh, so Jesus is absolutely not created. He's co-eternal with the Father. And yet uh, there's this kind of picking up on the language of Jesus, uh, the Father's begotten the Son. There is some sense in which Jesus proceeds, the Son proceeds from the Father, and I'm going to let Lauren deal with that, either today or another time. But um, it's somehow holding together the distinction without saying he's created. Uh, and personally, I think that um, we need to be wary of getting too highly technical, like divisively technical, maybe, or thinking we're going to get it figured out, um, because there is something we can't fully wrap our minds around here. So it's, it's holding together this mystery. But it is, um, I mean, I think the way it, it becomes most practical is when we think about what the early Christians were wrestling with. So they want to affirm, I mean, they, they feel that they have to affirm that Jesus is God, that he's divine, because he is saving us. He's forgiving sins. He has the power to save us. And only God has that power. Only God, uh, Yahweh. So if we're going to affirm that Jesus is divine, that means we're affirming that there is something like a father and a son, and how do we hold those together with our monotheistic affirmations, right? And so part of what monotheism is claiming is that there is a God that is a creator of all things. There's only one, one reality, one divine reality that creates the whole world. 
So if we're going to say the son is also created like the rest of us, that can't really mean that he's God. He has to be the creator. So what we find in John 1, the word was with God, the word was God. There's this paradox there. That the world is being made through this one that is not that is not the Father, uh, but this one is also divine. So I think what what they end up working out is how could it be that there is some something like this someone who is begotten but that isn't a creature, and so they come up with this idea that it is something like a procession, but it's an eternal one. It's a it's a relationship that has always been, and so. Uh, you know, there's early Christians are always coming up with these metaphors and ways of trying to imagine what this is like. Uh, one is that um, the Father, Son, and Spirit are like a stream, where there's like a, a source of a spring, there's the water that wells out of it, and then there's like uh, later on where it turns into a lake. And so we can think of God as the water, but there are these different sourcing relations within it, right? There's all sorts of ways that Christians try to get at what this might be like, always drawing attention to the fact that these are limited. These, these aren't exactly what God is, but this helps us imagine. This helps us think about how it could be. Mm-hmm. So if we think of the Father being like the source of the spring, the Son being like the one that's always emerging from it, that's how we can think of the Son being begotten without being a creature. Yeah. yeah. Very nice. Uh, yes. But you said, um, you know, one of the reasons it's important to pick through this is just what we give up. I mean, I, as I think about the Apostles' Creed, I think about critique of communion earlier, I think about a lot about what we share with other Christians. And for generations, there's a lot of dissecting among mm-hmm. denominations, etc. Well, the reality is now, you know, the church, at least in America, is shrinking mm-hmm. people. So we need to get back to what we share yeah. and reverse that trend. And just kind of reorient us a little bit toward that. Yeah. And I think the community discussion as well, as you think of you know, anybody from the Presbyterian, the Methodist, or Baptist Church, where there's some commonality there yeah. that maybe we kind of pushed away, but it might be worth revisiting a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah, I think both both sides of that, that by remembering what's central, it can help with some of the petty divisions that maybe we have. But there's also that apologetic piece. When we know our story, I think we can better than say, man, this is good news. Let's share this. Uh, rather than having a kind of hazy idea of what it is, and and it's basically like what everybody else believes who's not a Christian, but no, there's something special about this. And we can be united around it, and we can also go outward uh, knowing this. Yeah. Uh, just a word about semantics. As I look back on uh, 30, almost 39, my whole church life, it seems like I have and I have heard uh, the words God and Father used synonymously, mm-hmm. uh, but not God and Son or God and Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. particularly in prayer. And as I hear this, I, I begin to question that, mm-hmm. although Jesus prayed our Heavenly Father. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm questioning that because God is perhaps synonymous with Father, Son, Spirit, co-equally, mm-hmm. not to get too philosophical. What are your take on that? Yeah, so we can say God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Um, but I think we, we don't, in part because the New Testament tends to be Often God and Father are used more synonymously, um, and Jesus is often Lord. 
Uh, so you kind of get this, but you do get some interchangeability among that as well. Um, but it would be healthy to bring in, to say God the Son sometimes, so it's not doesn't stick in the throat. Like, we kind of know it, but then when we say it, we feel awkward, yeah. almost. Um, so yeah, I think we should we should say that kind of thing. So who do we pray to? Who do we pray to? Yeah. All. Pray uh, to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. Is that the, is that the right prepositions there? Yeah, so... And why is that important? We should get it. We will get into this next week. So it's a great question, I think, about what what do we lose, like Josh was saying, when we accidentally like cut some of this off. And so one of the things I think we can lose by focusing so much on the Father to the neglect of the Son and the Spirit is a sense of how the other two are at work in our salvation and what that means for us as we live out our faith. But um, the event of prayer is a Trinitarian event because we are literally taught to pray by the Spirit. We're praying through the Son. as That means we're being formed in the likeness of the Son as we pray. And we're praying to the Father, technically. But we can also, there's also plenty of room in the tradition to address the Spirit or the Son. So there's kind of a, that, that's one of those things that's kind of, there's some wiggle room there. But like in Romans, it's a Trinitarian event of praying to the Father. Yeah, so if we... Maybe bringing this, because we're not going to finish this today. Um, but as we're thinking about Jesus' divinity, and we'll also think about his humanity, uh, the author of Hebrews talks about Jesus as the great high priest. And part of the reason he's the great high priest, if we're thinking about prayer, is because he is the perfect mediator, fully God, fully human. We're not just praying to God um, from our human position with no mediator. Uh, we're not just praying to a human. But we're praying to one fully God and one fully human. He knows what it's like, and he knows, and he's one with the Father. That is, that's amazing uh, that we have this great high priest who we can pray to and through. Um, yeah. Some of the issue here, uh, if you're involved in spiritual disciplines of prayer, mm-hmm. where you have an intimate relationship with God, your heart aches when you contemplate what's happening in Venezuela or Somalia or wherever you are with Catherine Broadway or little Sam or mm. three-year-old cancer, then you're not surprised that he's present. I mean, and so it's not that you're looking for some kind of mountaintop. It's that you're not surprised. He's, he's around the table. And maybe the symbolism we lost, but thinking about personal intimate relationship with Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so... If you're waiting for the communion, and if you're a Presbyterian, you've got to wait quarterly, or if you're just not concentrating on the weekly, we mm-hmm. have, you're missing it. It's an, it's an everyday life experience. Now, maybe those are reminders that help maybe, but it's, it's back to the, if you're trying to live a disciplined Christian mm-hmm. life, it's no surprise when you gather around the table. He's, he's there, you know, yeah. it's a promise. But he's there in that prayer, whether it's, as Fletcher said, it's, driving down the street and you're trying to all this stuff's garbling around your head and it's, your mind's going to explode if you mm-hmm. let it get to you. But you got to turn it over to them. Yeah. All you can do is acknowledge it's going on and you won't have <coughs> um, Matt, will you lead us in the creed to maybe finish us out? <coughs> By the way, if you're... I know we got asked last year, last semester... What are things we can do for our children? This is something Laura and I do. We have we do the 
the Apostles' Creed every day at breakfast. Lord's Prayer, Apostles' Creed. These are little ways that we're trying to, to kind of center them. And as they get older, we're beginning to explain to them more and more. But, but right now, we're trying to give them those kind of building blocks, little scaffolding uh, for later on. It's a little tidbit about what awesome parents we are. Uh, <laughs> And then we usually yell at him for, you know, but 